Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. So uh, great to see everybody. Welcome to part six. Uh, I'm so excited that you're joining me. Uh, for the sixth installment of this seven-part series. We're almost there, and um, I think most of you have stayed with me through parts one, so welcome back. If you haven't, as Michelle said, you can always go back and catch up. A lot of people reach out to me about materials. Uh, you can get them through the Academy website. Also, the Mentor ESQ uh, website has all of the prior uh, episodes by audio podcast and video, and you could click links for credit and uh, to download the materials also. So don't worry if you weren't present for anything live, you can get it all online. Speaking of the podcast, just very quickly, I wanted to give you all um, a heads up about something very exciting in my opinion. Uh, one of the great things that I have found from doing this series is that we get this group of 750, 1,000, 1,200 lawyers together uh, and it becomes this interactive community. And the fact that there's on average about a thousand of us out there that can meet monthly, weekly, and discuss uh, topics of interest in the legal community is just amazing to me. And I never thought it could ever be done before. And a lot of feedback that I get when I speak with lawyers um, in my one-on-ones and my Zooms and my emails is how much they enjoy the community and the exchanging of ideas. So my podcast is launching something called The Roundtable, which I'm pretty psyched about. And the idea, it's not for CLE credit, it's for those of you that have questions, that wanna hear what I think, what, wanna hear what Michelle thinks, other lawyers, defense lawyers, insurance claims reps, um, just a place to communicate and talk. So uh, starting on June 16th will be the first episode of the Mentor ESQ Roundtable podcast. It'll be a webinar format like this. If you'd like to submit questions in advance, you can. If you want to participate live and have be on the window where um, I'll give your, you, you can introduce yourself, give your name, your law firm. On the website, we'll have your contact info, hopefully get you some future business. Um, you'll get an email later today and as it gets closer to register to either observe and participate and uh, hopefully you'll join me. I think it's going to be a real great way to exchange ideas we can talk about anything from trial skills to um, settlement values to racing cars. So keep an eye out for that. All right. Now, today we are talking about the trial. Now, if you've been paying attention, you notice those of you watching something different about me today. I'm wearing a tie. The first time I put on a tie. And that is because it's time for trial. When it's time for trial, you got to dress to impress. You have to dress for success. And I'm very serious about that. Um, before today, I got groomed, trimmed my beard, I put on a nice suit, I put on a tie. You need to mentally and physically get yourself ready for trial. And it starts with your grooming, it starts with how you present yourself to your adversary, to the judge, to the jury, when you show up for jury selection, when you get up to make your opening statement, um, when you want to command that courtroom. You're not going to be very commanding if your shirt tail's hanging out and you have a clip-on tie that's hanging off the side, okay? You need to be prepared uh, not only for the substance of the trial and the skills involved, but also for how you're going to be groomed and look. You want to look collected. 
You want to look together uh, at all times when you're doing any public speaking, uh, but certainly uh, when you show up for trial. It'll get you feeling good. We all feel good when we look good, when we feel like we're at our best. And um, first impressions count. First impressions count from the minute you walk into that room with 20 plus potential jurors looking at you for jury duty uh, in the selection process. Uh, if you look like you've got your act together and your adversary doesn't, what do you think they're thinking there before they know anything? They're looking at you. They're bored. They're sizing everybody up. So dress to impress. Now, the materials for today um, are pretty thin. Uh, you know, I like to give practical materials. And so far, up until this point, I've been able to give you documents that you can use throughout the litigation and preparing for trial that are helpful. Now that we're in the trial, there's, it's really not document heavy. So once you scroll through some of the images of my website and my CV, um, you're going to see three things in the materials today that you don't need to look at now, but they're there for you to use. Um, the first two items are links to type into or copy and paste into your um, web browser that will take you to the federal rules of evidence and the New York State Courts um, uh, code of evidence and uh, collated rules through the CPLR and others for um, looking at the rules. It's really important when you're gearing up for trial and when you're at trial to have quick access to rules of evidence. We're not all professors of evidence, um, but the highlights you need to know and you always want to have them either on a laptop or a little, they make these great little books, like handbooks for evidence that are actually small. I always stick those in my trial briefcase uh, because you need to take a quick break, an issue comes up, you wanna know the rules of evidence, all right? So I gave you those links. Then I also gave you an outline that I've prepared for um, jury selection, opening statements, direct cross-exam and summation. It's a very broad, simple um, outline just to help you get organized. And the reason I gave that to you is because um, this one hour, there's just no way I can go through in detail trial skills. That is how to pick a jury, how to present opening statements, prepare and present, how to prepare and conduct a cross-examination. So I'm going to, in this lecture, this hour we have left, um, I'm going to talk about a lot of things that we need to all know uh, to be the best we can be for trial and during trial and at the conclusion of trial. But when it comes to actual skills, I've got a lot to share, at least an hour on, on, on various different elements of a trial and the skills. And so I'm pleased to announce that um, starting this fall, September 8th will be the debut part of a new series called Anatomy of a Trial, Trial Skills. And uh, we'll be going through uh, a specific um, episode on jury selection, a specific one just on direct exam, specific on opening statements, cross-exam summation. I'm going to open up my, uh, my, my black book and show you exactly how to prepare for and present all of those. So we're going to get to talk about a lot of really important stuff about the trial today, and I think you'll find it helpful. I'm really curious, and perhaps you all are as well, as to how many of us um, have tried a case before a jury, all the way to verdict. And I've asked Michelle to prepare a quick survey. It's anonymous. It's up on your screen now. Um, it has nothing to do with CLE. It's just to give us all an idea of the participants here of how many of us have tried a jury trial to verdict. Please give an honest answer so we can try and see this data. And in a few moments, uh, Michelle will share that data on the screen so we can all see. We're at about 871. Um, so think to yourself, how many of these 871 participants do you think have tried a case to verdict? My guess is 
25 to 30%, maybe less. Um, we'll see what comes up. I'm very curious. I know we have a wide range of, um, of areas of law that we all practice. Not everybody tries cases as part of their line of work. We have a lot of lawyers that haven't had the chance to try a case. If you're a younger lawyer, uh, there just haven't been trials in the last few years. So we'll see what happens there. But let's get talking about Yep, We're Michelle. At 86%. Here All right, we can go. you pop it I'm up? I'm surprised. Wow. Look at that. More people than not have tried a case to verdict of uh, these 800 some odd people that we have here. Very interesting. Okay, that's great. So it's almost split 56 to 44. 56 have tried a jury trial to verdict, 44 have not. So um, this is great because I think we'll all be able to you know, take advantage of what we're going to chat about here today. There's a little bit of something for everyone. As I always say in a CLE, you could just take away something that'll help you moving forward, then it's worth it. All right. So the key elements I'm going to cover today are what to expect at trial and how to capably handle yourself during that part of the trial. Now, um, when we know it's time for trial, there's lots of emotions that'll come up for us. And we all may have and likely do have very different emotions. Are you anxious? Do you get nervous? Are you scared? Are you excited? Are you pumped up? Are you terrified? Um, I'm sure we all have some or all of those emotions running through us. When it's that morning you're getting up and you're going to start a trial or the night before, uh, there's lots of emotions. And the idea is to channel those emotions um, and use them for power and for strength going into the trial. Channel your energy for positive ways. And whether you're anxious or you're nervous or you're scared, probably most of us aren't so excited and pumped that we're not even nervous. I get nervous and anxious before every trial. There's lots of things to worry about. Are my witnesses going to show up? Um, am I going to do well? Uh, what's going to happen? Are we going to start? Are we not going to start? Uh, is the judge going to you know, allow me to get something into evidence that's so important? Uh, there's different things to be nervous about or anxious about. And I have found that the best, best way to manage uh, our emotions when we're about to start a trial is by being prepared. You know, that's my mantra. Preparation, preparation, preparation. When you prepare yourself and you prepare your client or your witnesses and basically prepare everything you can that's within your control because so much of the trial is not in your control. You have to accept that as well. You can't control everything. That's what makes them scary for me, especially you can't control what a jury is going to decide, um, even if you're right. But if you can prepare yourself as much as possible and prepare your witnesses as much as possible, then when you go to start the trial at jury selection, when you get up to make your opening statement, if you've prepared properly, you'll feel good. You're not going to be as anxious. You're not going to be as nervous or scared because you've been prepared. The things that keep me up at night, we all have those dreams, those anxiety dreams, different things. I have those dreams where I'm about to start a trial and I don't know the case. Literally, I'm in a courtroom and I have my red well and I'm looking for something like an intake sheet or bill particulars. I have no idea what the case is about. I'm about to get up and give an opening statement. That's when we're nervous. If you're hoping the case is going to settle at the last minute at jury selection and it doesn't and you're sent to go get started and you haven't prepared anything, you should be nervous. OK, but if you've prepared everything, it's going to bring it all down a notch. You're going to feel good. You've got this. You've got this because you're prepared. 
All right. So how do we do that? First thing that I like to do, and I mentioned it a little bit in the pre-trial uh, series of the pre-trial episode last month, is size up the courthouse uh, before the trial starts. Find out what's going on with jury selection. If you've never been to that specific courthouse, go there. I mean, I've been trying cases for 25 years, and the trial I talked about that I had in Queens County um, right before the pandemic ended, I had tried cases in the main courthouse on Southern Boulevard, but I never stepped foot in the Long Island City part of Queens uh, Supreme. So I went there and I checked it out because I wanted to see what my environment would be like. So I encourage you to do that. Find out what's going on with jury selection. Um, there are really, you know, only so many main parts of a trial, and I'll talk about those. These are the ones I'll get into the skills part in the fall. But you've got jury selection, that is part of the trial. You have opening statements, direct examinations, cross-examinations, and closing arguments, or what we call summations. You may have heard of your summation suit. That's when everybody gets their best outfit for summation to look good. I like to have my opening suit, my trial suits in general. You always want to look good. But jury selection can be a total wild card. And that's probably one of the things I'm most nervous about that's most out of my control at the start of a trial. So the, there are a few things that I recommend everyone do before jury selection. The first is go check it out. Take a look at the jury room, see what the potential jurors look like. Speak to the locals, uh, the, the attorneys that are trying cases all the time in that area. Ask them what's, what's going on, how does it work when you show up, uh, what can you expect, because it's different every place, okay? And um, there could be pick and go jury selection or pick and pass. And you want to find out where that is because it's not uniform and it can happen anywhere in state court and it can be changed. It can go one week from pick and go to another week to pick and pass. It can even be in federal court. They may have you pick a jury at one point and then start the trial several days or a week later. Um, pick and go means right after you pick a jury, you go to the trial judge and you start. It also means you may get sent to a trial judge first who's going to try the case and then the trial judge recruits the potential jury pool and you pick the jury right in the courtroom where you're gonna try the case in that judge's courtroom and you start right afterwards. Um, pick and pass is when you go to pick a jury, usually like one or two weeks before the trial's gonna start. You show up, you pick the jury. If it takes one, two or three days, however long it takes, the jury is told to be on standby. Then you get assigned to a judge then the judge meets with you, goes over scheduling, and when the trial's about to start, the judge calls the jury in and you start. So you wanna find out, are you pick and go? Are you pick and pass? Because that's gonna help you with knowing, do I need to be prepared with my opening right away? Um, do I need to have my witnesses and my clients there right away? Um, or do I have a week off to get my act together, to do some more prep, uh, to schedule witnesses? You also wanna find out when you're getting assigned to your trial judge. Before you pick a jury, um, after you pick a jury, if it's pick and pass before you start, if it's pick and go. So these are all questions you should ask. Do your homework, all right? Very important to do that. Find out for jury selection, is it White's method or Struck method? Again, I'll talk in more detail, but basically White's method, it's two different methods. And the rules are actually in New York State Supreme Court that uh, the parties can agree on a method, but usually the court will have a default if the parties don't agree. Um, but generally you show up and the 
the part or the courtroom, the jury clerk will tell you whether it's White's or Strunk. White's method is basically of the whole jury room, you put six up front at a time. You do have your questioning, your challenges, your selections, your strikes for cause. See if you end up with anybody. Uh, let's say you, you, you agree and one person is on, then you bring in another five people and it just keeps going like that. But you only question those front six people at a time. Struck method, which is my preferable method, is the whole room fills up, everybody, you number their seats, you know, based on where they're seated, like one through five, six through 10, seven through 12, whatever. And then you start questioning everybody. And then if they get stricken, that's the struck idea because for cause or challenge or peremptory, then you go to the next person. I like that because you see who's coming up next. Uh, when it's the whites method, you roll the, 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 um, the bin that has everybody's jury cards to decide randomly who comes up and fills the seats. So you want to be prepared for both and how to conduct it, but find out. So with jury selection, where is it? Pick and go, pick and pass. Is it white? Is it struck? Do your homework. That will help you feel more comfortable and more prepared before you go and pick a jury. Now, all of the remaining parts of a trial after jury selection will happen before a judge. Sometimes, as I said, jury selection will happen before the judge, meaning the judge is there. In federal court, depending on whether it's your magistrate judge trying the case or the district judge trying the case, um, it's up to the judge to decide how much they want to let you get involved. But the judge is certainly going to be sitting on the bench when it's time to pick a jury. And uh, the judge is going to ask for voir dire, propose questions in advance. Uh, they're going to want to make sure that they keep things tight. They may limit you quite a bit in your questions. They may not let you ask too many questions at all. They may ask you to submit questions for the judge to ask of the jurors. So you're going to want to ask, and there's nothing wrong. You know, one thing I've learned over all these years is don't be shy about asking questions. And all of the young lawyers out there, the newer lawyers, um, please take that advice to heart. Don't feel just because you're new that you should be shy to ask. I ask all the time and you'll see as we go through this, there's different phases where I'll ask the judge certain questions to make sure that I'm comfortable with how things are gonna proceed. And it doesn't make you look inexperienced or naive. It makes you look smart that you're asking the right questions. Now, if you're not in front of the judge already, for jury selection, then at some point you will be assigned a trial judge. Generally what'll happen in state court is after you pick a jury, um, you let the jury part know, and then they'll assign you at some point immediately or shortly thereafter to an available judge to try the case, all right? That's who's gonna be your trial judge. The very first thing I do is I quickly research the judge. I wanna know who's trying my case. Is she tough? Is she plaintiff friendly? Is she defense oriented? Is she um, slow? Is she fast? Meaning, does she do cases drag on forever? Do cases move quickly? Um, what can I expect? What's the courtroom scenario like? Um, what do other trial lawyers have to say about their experience uh, trying cases before this particular judge? So the way you research your judge is you can go on Google, type the judge's name in. There's something called the roving room, which is sort of a reviews of judges where lawyers anonymously comment on judges. Uh, that's always interesting to look up. Uh, you reach out to your colleagues, shoot emails to lawyers that you know try a lot of cases, especially um, you know what I've done, as I said, when I go to a jury part first and meet the locals that are in that courthouse all the time, I may say, give me a card. Do you mind if I get assigned a judge, if I shoot you an email and you can sort of give me the scoop? 
they'll say, sure, no problem. So I recommend doing that. It's nice to know before you're walking into chambers or that courtroom, sort of what to expect. Um, that's usually helpful. So you want to be prepared for the judge uh, so that when you show up, you know what you're dealing with. You have your act together uh, and you're ready to uh, discuss the case with the judge um, uh, before proceeding to start the trial. Uh, remember, be respectful. I personally don't like when lawyers call judges judge. Like, judge, can we do this? Or excuse me, judge. I find that to be informal. Uh, I always feel the most respectful way is to say your honor. Uh, certainly in front of a jury, your honor, and um, certainly in chambers and when dealing with your adversaries, um, unless you have a particularly close relationship where you feel more comfortable, it's yes, your honor, no, your honor. How does your honor like to have us move things into evidence? So you want to get off on the right foot with the judge. Uh, I can tell you that makes a huge difference. If you're prepared in meeting the trial judge first, it'll look good to your adversary, it'll look good to the judge, it's going to help you get the trial off on the right foot. Okay. It is okay when you first meet the trial judge to ask questions. Um, like I said, the uncertainty of scheduling and all of that, that's what makes things scary and uncertain about a trial. So the more you know, the better. So there are certain questions I like to ask of every trial judge at the start of a trial, even if I've tried a case before this judge previously. I like to ask, what, what's the schedule like, Your Honor? Um, do you work all days? Um, do you have motion days that we're off? Uh, are, what hours should we expect to be here? What hours do you generally end the day? Because different judges are going to run their courtrooms differently. Uh, a particular judge might say, you're not going to be here on Wednesdays. I do motions all day and conferences all afternoon. Um, some judges may say, I want you here at 9 a.m. I get the jury up at 9.15, and I want that first witness on the stand at 9.30. Others may say, oh, counsel, you know, everyone's kind of has their thing, so we like to get going by 10. Um, you want to know these things. It's going to help you organize prepare for your commute to trial, make sure you have your witnesses and clients there. And so that you can, you know, you're going to need to prepare witnesses or experts during trial. So you're going to want to know, is court going to end usually at four o'clock? What time will I be back to my office? When can I have time? So you can start slotting in prep sessions or, or when you're going to get your work done and your preparation done. So ask those questions. I also like to ask of the trial judge um, if they have any restrictions on your movement within the courtroom during trial. And what I mean by that, as uh, half of you know, and the other half have, may not know, is uh, there's what's called the well. The well is the area in front of the jury box. Um, most trial lawyers, the majority, I believe, like to be able to freely move about the well. So that is the question, Your Honor, are we free to move about the well? And that means generally on opening statement and closing arguments, can you stand up and move around, move a little closer, move further away, move exhibits up onto the, um, onto the uh, exhibit holder, uh, things like that. Some judges do not want you to move away from the podium ever. Uh, there's usually a podium in the courtroom. I've had judges say, no, there's no moving around in my courtroom. You stay at the podium for everything. Some judges uh, will do a mix. They'll say, I don't want you moving around during direct and exam. Certainly on opening and closing, you can move about the well. But you want to know this in advance, because if you get up to do your opening statement and there's a podium seated right there at the middle, and you just blow right by it and start doing your thing in the well, you don't want to be reprimanded in front of the judge if the judge doesn't want you to do that. 
in front of a jury. So ask these things in advance. Uh, you may want to ask the judge if they are open to pre-marked exhibits. We talked about that uh, in the last um, webinar, uh, getting ready for trial, pre-marking exhibits. Some judges say, great, if you can agree. Some say, no, I want everything offered in at the appropriate time. Uh, you, you might want to ask the judge about objections. Uh, do they want you to give the basis of your objection when you stand up? Or do they want you just to stand up and say objection? Uh, you know, most judges don't want speaking, long-winded objections. Uh, but we'll talk about objections during the trial skills program in the fall. But there's a blessing. Sometimes it's easier just to stand up and say objection. You know the question your adversary is asking is objectionable. You may not be sure what the basis is. Uh, and if the judge says, just say objection, I got it. You stand up and say objection. The judge may give you a sustained and you don't even have to come up with the basis for it. Otherwise, you may have to come up with objections. Uh, leading or objection, argumentative or whatever it may be. So you could ask questions like that. You're going to want to know about when you're going to get the subpoenaed records in the courtroom. Usually the, the judge will have the court clerk call the subpoenaed records room. We talked about that last time about reviewing those and bring everything up. You're going to want to let the judge know, may we have some time to review the subpoenaed records, you know, and see if there's anything missing, see if there's any issues. Uh, you should be prepared for settlement discussions with the judge. Some judges like to say, hey, anything we can do about settlement? Uh, some don't. Some judges say, you had your chance, we're trying the case. Uh, but find out if your trial judge is the type that will talk settlement. If you want to settle the case, let's say you're not that far off the number you feel either as a plaintiff or defense can close the case, uh, but you may need the judge's help in twisting some arms, um, you could ask the judge, you know, your honor, can I speak with you privately for a moment? That's okay. That's all right. Um, I will do that. I'll say, Your Honor, I think we're pretty close. We're ready to go. But I think with Your Honor's help, we might be able to make some progress and, uh, you know, depending on this or that. And some judges are happy to get into it uh, and do that. So it's all right to ask to speak to uh, the judge uh, privately or ask if there's any potential benefit to maybe some settlement discussions. Okay. Um, if you have scheduling issues, either personally or with witnesses, tell the judge and be honest, okay? Um, I can't tell you how many judges get mad when some lawyer tries to snow them and say, oh, I've got a conflict on Friday uh, that just came up and they come up with some nonsense when really they've had a golf outing scheduled with their college friends for the last five years. Uh, they're looking forward to it to celebrate someone's 50th and this was the one date and, uh, but you didn't expect this trial to go. You know what? Tell the judge, say, your honor, I get it. I'll be here if I need be, but I had this thing scheduled for a really long time. Is there any possible way I could have off Friday? Okay. Be honest with the judge. They're much more inclined to uh, have respect for you if you're honest and you let them know if you have any kind of scheduling conflict, whether it's personal or not. If you have witnesses, um, if you have a witness that just, you know, is not available and you're trying and, and uh, you want to subpoena them uh, and that you, they may not show up, or you want to call an adverse witness and your adversary hasn't made it clear if they're going to produce or not, let the judge know early on before the trial. You want to get all these open-ended issues out. You don't want to wing it, okay? That's the right way to get off on the right foot with the judge, with your adversary, and with yourself to be prepared to proceed with the trial, all right? Now, after you have your jury selected, you have the initial meeting with the court, 
you figure out what the schedule is, when you're going to open up, when the trial is going to go, what's going to happen. Um, most civil cases flow generally the same way, whether it's in a state Supreme Court or in a federal court. And here's how the flow normally goes. Um, after you've met with the judge and you have the jury selected, the judge will then request the jury to be uh, sent up from the jury holding area to the courtroom and you will be asked to be at counsel table and have your clients there if you'd like them to be there. Um, as to whether or not you want your client to sit at counsel table, that is a personal choice. You are certainly entitled to. Uh, I think they have a right to be there. I would certainly ask the judge also uh, if you do want your client to sit there, uh, if that's okay. Um, I generally have my clients uh, sit in the first row behind the entry into the, the main area where the council tables are, where the audience sits, um, so that I can focus on the work that I'm doing at council table. And if I have co-counsel, uh, that person will sit with me as well. Um, the jury's brought in. Then there's an initial charge. This is a charge that the judge is going to give to the jury on their obligation, on their duties. Uh, before that, the jurors are sworn in as jurors. You have the charge. The charge usually takes about 10, 15 minutes. The judge reads it, hopefully engages the jury, lets them know they got to pay attention, the importance of their role, what uh, their duties are as jurors. And then they turn to the plaintiff, uh, is counsel ready to proceed? Okay, and you're off and running. You're attending today's CLE via podcast. The first attendance verification code is POD245. Again, that's P. O-D as in pod, two, four, five. Thank you, Michelle. I see some of you have entered questions. Please feel free to fire away with questions. I love them. And I will take them towards the end of this main hour. And what we usually do, as most of you know, is from 2 to 2.30. If you want to stay on, you can get an extra half a credit. And we do a lot of Q&A. And I will certainly cover everything and more. So uh, fire away with whatever questions you have. And I will get to them after I go through everything. Now, look, I know uh, probably about 500 of you have gone through a full trial from beginning to end, and you may be sitting there saying, Smiley, we know this stuff. Come on, let's get to the goods. Um, the goods are going to come in the trial skill stuff. That's where we really get into the nitty gritty of preparing to take someone down on cross and how to give a dynamic opening statement and how to get the right jurors and all of that. But there are several hundred lawyers tuned in right now that have never tried a case to jury verdict. And, not, and a lawyer just hasn't taken the time to show them what actually happens. Maybe they did it in, um, in, in law school, in a mock trial program, uh, but maybe they've never done it before. And it's important that we all know the flow because that takes some of the uncertainty out of it. I'll never forget my very first trial. And many of you know, I was um, very active in Brooklyn Law School running the, uh, the national trial teams and on moot court and doing trial competitions. And I remember my very first trial, I turned to my father, Guy, Hey, Dad, I'm, I know you're out there, and you remember this. This was in Willoughby Street in Brooklyn. Uh, some of us older lawyers remember that courthouse, which now is where Shake Shack is right next to it. But I turned to my father, and I was like, Dad, I was like, so what do I need to know <laughs> that's different that I didn't do, you know, in these law school competitions? And he turns and he's like, nothing. He's like, trust me, you're going to be better prepared than the lawyer that you're going to go up against. And he was right. So, um, so you just need to know what you're doing because not everybody knows. So that's why I'm going through this uh, and sharing with you my, my tidbits. But um, after the plaintiff opens uh, and gives the opening statement, the plaintiff sits down, the defense opens, 
Uh, and if there's multiple parties, then they go in the order of the caption. And then after everybody's opened, then the judge will turn to plaintiff's lawyer, Mr. Smiley. Be ready to call your first witness. Stand up. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, the plaintiff's call as our first witness, the plaintiff, Oscar Almador. Oscar, please come take the stand. And we're off and running. All right. And from that point forward, you will continue uh, with the plaintiff calling all witnesses in direct. After a direct examination, the defense has the opportunity to cross-exam. If there's multiple defense uh, attorneys, uh, multiple defendants, everybody gets a shot, okay? Every lawyer in the courtroom, multiple plaintiffs, multiple defendants, everybody gets the shot to ask questions. Um, after your adversary does a cross-examination, you can do a redirect, then there can be a recross. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the fall, but that can go on and on until the judge stops it or you stop it yourself. Uh, and then you call your next witness. When the plaintiff runs out of calling witnesses, um, then the plaintiff must rest his or her, his or her case. Now, you as a plaintiff have to make out your prima facie case, meaning you have to put all the elements in that you need to prove your case. So if you need the testimony of a defendant witness, like in my Amador case I talked about of the motorcycle accident and the automobile accident, I wanted to cross-examine the defendant driver uh, to get some really good stuff out to help me make out my prima facie case. I can't wait. I can't rest my case and wait for that defense witness to take on the defense case because then I lose. My case will get dismissed if I needed that evidence. So I call whoever I need, if it's the defendant or a witness under the control of the defense or a non-party witness, you have to call all of those witnesses as part of your case in chief, all right? You can call a defense witness as an adverse witness to make out your prima facie case. So you call all of your witnesses and then you rest, all right? Now, how that happens is the judge will come back, say, Mr. Smiley, uh, call your next witness. I will stand up and say, Your Honor, at this time, the plaintiff rests, okay? Then uh, the court will turn to my adversary. Counsel, are you ready to proceed with the defense case? Counsel, if they're doing their job properly, will stand up and say, well, not just yet, Your Honor, we have some motions we'd like to make to the court, all right? So this is motion round one. If you consider eliminate motions at the beginning of the trial round one, which I kind of do or don't, depending when it happens, this is the true trial motion round number one at the end of the plaintiff's case. So what will happen is, is this is the opportunity for the defense, uh, one or more counsel, whoever's there to stand up and move to dismiss the plaintiff's case for failure to make out a prima facie case. Basically, Your Honor, we don't even need to put on a case because they have to make out a prima facie case. They didn't, uh, they didn't lay out the elements. They didn't establish any negligence. Uh, they didn't establish causation. Uh, their case should be dismissed as a matter of law. And we're moving for a directed verdict and ask that this court dismiss the plaintiff's case. Okay. Then the judge will turn back to the plaintiff, Mr. Smiley. Do you have anything to say about that? You, and I'll say, yes, Your Honor. Uh, we oppose their motion. We've made out a prima facie case. We've established through the testimony of X, Y, and Z. Uh, and I explain all the elements of how we've made out a case. Don't forget, you're usually in front of the jury. 
Uh, sometimes you're not, um, but you want to make those motions. Um, I think actually, no, I'll take that back. I think usually you're out of the presence of the jury. So you don't need to show off for these motions or put on a, a show about what you feel you've proven. Uh, and if you know it's not happening, you don't need to give a lot of detail. You could just say, Your Honor, we oppose defense motion. We feel that we've made out a very strong prima facie case. Um, usually what the judge will do, unless it is a really, really clear cut call and and there's not even an issue about it, like plaintiff's witnesses failed to show up or something, the judge will either deny it uh, or reserve decision and say, let's continue on. A plaintiff can move for a directed verdict at the close of a plaintiff's case. Uh, you can establish, if you think the elements of your case, and if you think the defendant's witnesses aren't going to make a difference, uh, and that it's impossible, like in a labor law case, perhaps, where you've established the elements that they have not been able to dispute, um, then, uh, then you can move for a directed verdict. All right. So that's motion round one happens at the close of plaintiff's case. Then we move on to the defendant's case. And the same thing happens. Defense will call each witness as the defense wants to. Uh, plaintiff will have the opportunity to cross. You have uh, redirect and recross. I have a lot of thoughts to share with you about uh, redirect and recross and tips for redirect and uh, tips for recross. I look forward to sharing with you, but no time today. We'll do that in the fall. But that's how it's going to proceed until the defense rests. All right. Then we have round two of motions. Same thing. Both sides will make a motion for a directed verdict, motion to dismiss, whatever you want to phrase it. Um, you can cite the law, the statutes, CPLR, you don't have to, you just need to make the motion clear on the record uh, and then the court can grant it um, or deny it or reserve. Uh, and then the next step will be um, closing arguments. Now, there's usually uh, a break between the close of the defense case. Um, and by the way, there sometimes can be rebuttal witnesses after the defense case, uh, sometimes not. The key here is you want to alert the court in advance. You want to, no surprises, like I said. Your Honor, depending on the witnesses they, they've called, uh, uh, we may want to uh, put on a rebuttal witness. Uh, specifically, they've given a disclosure as to a biomechanical engineer. Um, we don't know if they're going to call that biomechanical engineer. If they do, uh, then we'd like the opportunity to call ours in rebuttal. So again, heads up. Let everybody know your intentions, because then if they rest and you haven't told the court, they may be like, you didn't tell me you need a rebuttal witness. They rested. We're done. OK, you don't want to cause errors uh, and uh, and be sued for malpractice when you had a potential winner. But because you didn't get your biomechanical engineer on and your adversary did uh, and they were victorious and you were not. OK, um, now, before closing arguments, there will be a charging conference. Now, again, this is when you're asking the court for scheduling. For those of you who recall uh, last uh, month, in part five, we talked about uh, some judges want your, um, your charges, your verdict sheet, everything before you even start the trial, okay? Um, so charging conferences are when you uh, and your adversary will meet in chambers, uh, usually with the judge and or the judge's uh, main law secretary, uh, and go over the charges. You have to submit these. Uh, you print them out. You give the charges. The court will tell you when they want to receive them by, before trial or during trial. And you'll sit down and you'll go back and forth. The judge may say, I'm going to give this charge. I'm not going to give that charge. 
Um, you have a discussion about it and uh, you may get some charges you want that your adversary doesn't. There will be a lot of charges you all agree on. There probably won't be any charges you all disagree. Um, and uh, usually a good judge will tend to uh, defer to counsel. If both agree on a charge, they'll usually give it. If both disagree, then they usually won't. Um, but then you will have a record. You will go on and have a record following the charging conference where you make your on the record objections to certain charges, to the way they're phrased, to either giving it or failing to give it. That's what's gonna preserve your right uh, if the verdict doesn't go your way, you can have a basis on appeal uh, based on the uh, impropriety of a, giving a charge or failing to give a charge or giving it in the wrong way or using the wrong terms or wrong language. The charging conference is really, really important. Uh, if you work with an appellate lawyer, I recommend bringing your appellate lawyer. I always bring my father, guy, hey dad, I bring him in uh, for my charging conferences. He's my lawman. So he shows up with the PJI books for the charging conference. We have cases printed out. Uh, we're ready to go. It's like a, a mini um, appellate argument that you may have to do, especially if you know your adversary is going to be pushing back against a charge. So the way to prepare for that is, again, with your PJI, the annotations, verdict sheets, do your homework, because uh, that charging conference will decide the charge. Then what will happen is the charge is set. It'll be printed out before you close up and do your closing arguments. Each party will have the opportunity to look through the charge. It's usually done in a binder for the judge to read from, print it out, and you have to initial it or sign off something saying you've reviewed the charge uh, and but for your objections, uh, you've signed off on it, okay? As well as the verdict sheet, you usually have to initial that. That's all done before you start with closing arguments. That's all done. I usually beg and plead for you know a night before closing arguments. I never like to go straight from a witness or a conference right into closing arguments. You wanna know what's gonna be charged. You wanna have your act together. You wanna get a good night's sleep. I always ask the court, can we start fresh uh, in the morning? Uh, I never wanna start closing arguments on a Friday afternoon. Okay, you wanna think about when a jury's gonna to start to deliberate and, and, and all that. So um, that's another thing. It's okay to ask and to request. Where's that can happen is the court says no. I've had judges say no, we're gonna get this case done in two and a half days. I don't care if you have 10 witnesses. Uh, you know, others say, sure, Mr. Smiley, I like my Fridays off too. Why don't we just do summations Monday morning? You can have the weekend to prepare. That's cool with me, all right? So um, you get ready, then you do your closing arguments. The order is reversed. So, and this is generally, federal court, some things can change, there could be rebuttals, uh, but generally speaking in a civil case, um, the party with the burden always opens and closes last. So as a plaintiff, I usually get the first word and the last word. And believe me, I take advantage of both situations as much as possible. We'll talk about this in the fall. I get off on the right foot and have the jury right where I want them with my opening. And then I end the case uh, with my summation after the defense goes and leave them with exactly one, what I want them thinking about. And I'm the last person they hear from as far as the lawyers, after I sit down for my closing argument, immediately the judge proceeds with the final charge on the law, okay? That's why you wanna craft your closing argument with words and phrases from the charge, from the PJI, the pattern jury instructions. So if you've just spent the whole time in your closing argument saying that, um, saying that uh, you know, so-and-so departed uh, from the accepted standard of care, 
when the charge is going to say, if you find defendant deviated from good and accepted practice, they're going to be confused. So if the charge says deviated from good and accepted practice, you're going to say to the jury in your closing argument, members of the jury, we've established, we've proven that the defendant so-and-so deviated from accepted practice and failing to X, Y, and Z. And we're going to show you how that deviation occurred. You know, this is what you want to do. You want to weave all this in. You want to take that language. So right when you're done with your closing argument and you've used words in your theme and you end on your theme, I can't wait to talk to you guys about closing argument. You'll see in my outline, I talk about your, your basket. And basically just as a heads up, my theory on a trial is it's going to an orchard and picking apples with a basket in your arm. Every apple you pick is evidence. It's something you need for the case. On the direct of this witness, I've gotten those apples. On the cross, I've gotten those. Getting this in document and evidence, that's an apple. Then you take that basket of apples over the weekend, you mix them all up, you bake a beautiful apple cake, and you deliver it to the jury right in your closing argument. So that's what I, when you see, you know, get stuff for your closing argument basket, um, that's what you want to do. That's how you think about things. So when you've delivered that cake, you want to make sure the words, everything, your theme, the way you finish strong in your closing argument, smile, end, thank the jury, walk back to your seat, boom, goes into the judge's charge. Immediately, they start hearing your words come out of the charge like, oh, that's right. Mr. Smiley is just talking about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. So that's how this all sort of works. Um, the jury will then go deliberate. There's usually not, you usually don't get jurors sequestered these days. Um, so they'll be sent to a jury room to deliberate. And uh, they'll, you know, the days are gone where they call in lunch. I remember those days because the jury could just start and go all day. Now they have to take a break for lunch for an hour and they can go out for lunch and come back. The jury deliberations take much longer than they need to and should and used to. I hate jury deliberations. It is the most stressful part. Talk about things out of your control. You know, you're second guessing yourself on everything. You're wondering what they're thinking. You're wondering how you did. You're wondering if they heard you. No idea what's going to happen. You've put all this time and energy and money into this case. You've got a client anxiously waiting. It's pretty stressful. I haven't learned how to manage it yet. I'll let you know when I do. It's just part of trying cases. Um, but when the jury goes to deliberate, they're given everything usually. And sometimes the judge will ask you what you want to do. Do you want to give all the exhibits and, and give them uh, everything uh, to take that's been put in evidence into the jury room? Or do you want to wait unless they request it and then give it? These are discussions you and your adversary and judge um, can have. I prefer to give them everything. Because if they have a question or they want something, when a jury's deliberating, the only way they can communicate with the court or the lawyers is by submitting a note. So even if they just want the police report that was moved into evidence, they have to write a note, they have to give it to the bailiff or the court, court officer or the court clerk. Court clerk then calls the judge who's sitting and hanging out in chambers waiting for the jury to be done or have an issue. The lawyers get called. We all get called back into the room. We're told the jury has a note. The note's read uh, and judge says, is it all right, counsel, with you? If we give them the police report? Yes, yes. All right. We'll send them in. We don't need to call the jury out. But it saves time to just agree to give them everything so that if they need a readback or they have a verdict, those are other things they write notes for. Um, you really don't want too many notes. It creates more and more angst and stress. Uh, sometimes notes give you a little insight into what they're thinking. You know, they send a note. Um, 
do we have to limit the amount of damages to 10 years or can we give more on question number nine as a plaintiff you like those notes because you know they've gotten past liability um, but in any event that's how the interaction goes on during deliberation finally the jury submits a note we have a verdict get it to the trial judge the trial judge calls everybody in uh calls the, ju the judge uh looks at the calls the jury in uh looks at the verdict sheet that we've all prepared labeled make sure there's nothing that looks odd or inconsistent everybody who's signed has had to they give it back and then the clerk then um then asks the four person to stand have you reached a decision a verdict yes uh, as to question number one they read all the questions how do you find how does the jury find yes no yes no then in state court they say was this unanimous state court you need five out of six jurors one can be a holdout on every single question it could be a different person each time all right in federal court it has to be unanimous that's why some plaintiffs are scared of federal court uh, and that's one of the potential downsides is you have to convince everybody to see your way and the way the law is in federal court it, it's a minimum of six jurors a maximum of 12 the judge has discretion what i see normally happening is starting with eight jurors and that way it leaves two as alternates uh, and however are left whether it's eight seven or six at the end of the trial they all go to deliberate and it has to be unanimous in federal court. Um, the jury reads its verdict. You're either happy or sad, depending which side of the case you're on, or maybe it's a mixed message. Um, then um, there's an opportunity to poll a jury. The judge will say, does the counsel, either counsel wish to poll the jury? What that means is asking the clerk will ask each individual juror, juror to stand up and as to each question, ask them how they found on that question. So as to question number one, juror number two, did you answer yes or no? Uh, I answered no, okay. Um, so this way you can see who that holdout is. Um, and so whenever it's not uniform, if it's a five, six, I always like to poll a jury. And if it is uniform and I lose, I like to poll a jury because that's another way to confirm and make them stand up in front of my client and say they found against them a little bit of self uh, acknowledgement there. So that's up to you. But again, there's issues or errors. It's always good because sometimes someone may stand up and say, I said yes, but I didn't think it would mean it would be a defense verdict. Oh, okay, judge, we need to talk about this. Um, so that's why if you lose, always pull a jury. And if you're curious, uh, for whatever reason, pull a jury. Um, I'm going to just sort of wrap up with the flow of the trial, and then we're going to get to the Q&A. So after the verdict is rendered, um, that's the opportunity now for um, post-trial motions. So um, that what you'll do is, um, if you're unhappy with the decision, um, you're going to make an oral application, uh, if the judge allows, uh, saying that you feel that it was against the weight of the evidence. Uh, that's a typical uh, basis. You have a right. Uh, everybody, every litigant has a right to appeal a jury verdict as a matter of right. Uh, you can do it based on it being against the weight of the evidence. You can do it that one, uh, the party didn't make out uh, prima facie case. You can say that the, the verdict was too low if you win the case, but a low 
number you can ask for an editor um the defendant if the number comes in and it's a really too high number they can ask for a remitter to have it reduced um most judges don't want to deal with this at the end of a trial and they'll give you a timeline and say post-trial motions should be submitted on paper within 30 days uh then what happens is you submit your post-trial motions um you request the transcripts that you need to support those motions then the judge will issue a decision on your post-trial motions. And then that is what you appeal from. Uh, if you're not satisfied with the verdict and the judge's decision, then you appeal from the judge's order on the post-trial motions. And that's the trial, okay? There's some other stuff. Um, there's um, sort of some post-trial hearings on collateral source. There may be something called 50B, uh, which is calculating future uh, earnings. Uh, and uh, collateral source is for judgment purposes of what's been paid already by another source. So these are all things that you work with uh, when you're working to enter judgment, which ultimately you'll want to do if the verdict went your way. You get the extract from the jury part, uh, the official record of the minutes, uh, and then you enter that and file it and serve it with notice of entry. Um, so you're going to want to do that, and then the trial's done. And then usually you'll negotiate a settlement, or um, you go up on appeal and see what happens if you have to retry the case. So that is generally the flow. Um, hopefully um, you all took away a little something of that. It either reiterated what you have or reminded those of you. We, none of us have tried a case in a long time, I'm sure. Uh, but now I'm going to get into the Q&A because I, I've seen there's some really great questions asked. And, um, and if you are leaving before the Q&A, I encourage you to come back for the last part. Part. Let's finish this series together in part seven. I'll go over more post-trial matters, settlement, wrapping up cases, escrow accounts, uh, how you uh, distribute funds and money and expenses, and uh, all that good stuff, okay? So that'll be the final part, uh, which is next month, uh, and I hope to see you all there. Now, as far as questions, uh, I'm going to try and go in order. Um, what questions do I anticipate asking in voir dire regarding COVID and their ability to be fair and impartial? Um, you know, it's a good question. The closest thing I have to relate this to is sort of after 9-11, we all thought, oh my goodness, no jurors ever going to want to give plaintiff money. Um, I have a feeling by the time we get back to uh, real jury trials and jury selection, it's not going to be as much of an issue with questioning, but I certainly would ask them, I would say, listen, you know, we've all been through really tough times. Is that going to affect you in any way in evaluating the case? Uh, I always like to ask questions about damages. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about the fact that my client is exercising her rights under the law to seek compensation? Uh, and that if we prove that the defendant was negligent, if you're satisfied, and I believe we will prove our case, do you have any problem compensating? And do you have any limits in your mind as to how much you would give as you sit here today? Uh, do you have any problem with that concept? It's not always the answers that you get, it's how they respond. Uh, you could, the idea with jury selection, we'll get into this in the fall, is trying to get a feel for the person as much as possible because they, what they say can just be a lie or just not be accurate, or they may not even know at the time you're asking really how they feel because they haven't heard the case and met your client yet. Um, how do you handle jury selection in Westchester County when you're given limited time to pick? Now, the last time I tried a jury in Westchester was about two years ago. And, you know, I found that we had sufficient time. I think for the most part, you know, if you and your adversary are on the same page, they're really not going to cut you off. But, you know, you shouldn't be spending hours and hours in jury selection. You got to learn how to keep it tight and move things along. I've never been cut off and felt uh, unfairly uh, cut short in jury selection ever in my career. Um, 
All right. Someone's asking, uh, made a nice comment here. Thank you, uh, Mr. Corolla. If you're in a new courthouse, it's good to ask about the character of your adversary. I always do that. You know, I ask around, hey, do you know this person that I'm litigating this case again against? Um, usually find out who the trial lawyer is pretty early or pretty early on. Sometimes they get assigned right at the time of trial. But yeah, you want to ask around, find out, are you dealing with a straight shooter? Can you trust this lawyer? Or is this lawyer going to sell you a bill of goods? No problem. I'll stick to that. And then you get to trial and they don't. Um, it's good to find out who you're dealing with. Um, I always tell my adversaries, I say, look, I'm a straight shooter. I'm never going to pull anything on you. Um, I'm happy to work with you. I'll show you stuff I want to get in. If you show me stuff you want to get in, you know, I'll try and slip it in. Let me know if it's, if it's not a killer and I think you're going to end up being able to get it anyway, I'll let you get it in. Like I said, as lawyers and adversaries, this dialogue that I've been preaching to everyone that you need to have a good dialogue from the very start of a case. It has to, it must continue as much as possible through the trial. Again, you can litigate a case, you can litigate a case hard at trial and go out for a cocktail uh, or start off with a coffee with your adversary. No reason not to. And you can congratulate each other on a job well done and on handling a tough witness. Uh, there's no reason not to. I go out of my way to try and congratulate my adversaries when they give a good summation or opening or handle something particularly well, especially if it's a, a, a younger attorney than I or someone not as experienced. For all of us that have been doing this a while, it's really important uh, to do that. You got to think of the big picture, okay? Um, do I let jurors take notes? It's a good question. Um, usually we don't have a say as the trial lawyers. Usually it's up to the court. If they leave it to me and my adversary, uh, do we want a juror to take notes or not? I usually do not. I find that they sit there, they doodle, uh, when I've seen notes and cases I've had, I haven't liked what I see is written. Uh, you know, things like, can you believe he had the nerve to say that or ask that question or this guy's killing me or, you know, whatever else. It's just, you know, they should be focusing on you. I don't like when jurors take notes. Some judges like that, though. Um, all right. Someone's asking me to go over the number of challenges in picking a jury. So generally, each party uh, on the side of the V has three challenges, okay? So if I'm plaintiff against one defendant, we ha each have three challenges. You can strike somebody for any reason. Now, I say for any reason, uh, there, are, there are exceptions to that. I'm not gonna get into it now, but generally speaking, you get three ones you can just get rid of no matter what on each side. If you have multiple defendants or multiple plaintiffs, uh, sometimes the court you can address that will allow you additional, or they may not. They may limit each side to collectively a certain amount of challenges. Uh, but generally, you each have three challenges. Peremptory challenge means for any reason. Um, otherwise, you can agree on cause and strike someone if you agree with your adversary, or you can apply to um, the judge overseeing the jury selection, usually a JHO, a judicial hearing officer, um, and apply for one to be stricken for cause. Um, how do I feel about second seating? If one side has uh, second seating, for those who don't know, is another person sit with you in the second seat. You can have them just sit there and help you organize and do notes and slip you notes, uh, pass your documents, or they can be actively engaged in the trial and handle witnesses and, and do parts of the trial with you. Uh, they're saying does, if one side has and the other doesn't, do jurors think there's going to be uh, an unfair advantage? Um, I don't think so. I never try and equal the score. If anything, you know, I like it if it's just me at counsel table and there's like five people at the other table. Um, 
because it's usually chaos over there. Uh, we'll talk about this in the fall, but I like a very neat organized desk, um, everything where you need it. Uh, usually uh, defense counsel, and I got to say defense counsel, uh, I'm calling you out now. The majority of you are not as neat and organized. It's the exceptional ones on your side of the, of the aisle that are. You see counsel tables with messes all over the place, and then you start adding two lawyers, three lawyers, four lawyers, Someone will see me sitting there with a nice, neat, quiet table, and then this bomb went off on my adversaries. I think it looks much better that I'm, I'm ably handling myself against all these lawyers. Um, so I don't think I need to equal the playing field by bringing more people. I always laugh. The, the corporate lawyers, I don't know how many of you are on this webinar, but with the big law firms with you know hundreds and hundreds of lawyers that bill for associates, you know, when you have a case and they show up with an entourage of five associates and two partners, you know, it's just, I laugh. I, I like that. I prefer that there's more on the other side. I think it's sort of, um, I don't know. I think it makes it, it look better for my side. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's my take on it. Um, all right. Someone's saying, I always have had a problem assuring that my experts will show up when needed because the timeline of the trial, you just don't know. You're a witness earlier or later. And, and how do you suggest dealing with that and paying the expert at great expense? Yes, good question, Mr. McFarlane. These are the things that keep us up at night. It's not enough that we have to be a dynamic trial attorney and figure out how to get our evidence in and question witnesses successfully and handle our adversary and the judge. We have to deal with scheduling. And we've got an expert, a surgeon, who says, you're paying me $15,000 at least 48 hours before trial. And if you have to reschedule, you're going to pay me another $10,000. How do you handle that? You handle it the best you can. And what you do is the first thing you do is you communicate with your adversary and you're honest. Say, look, I've got my expert. My expert needs a huge check that I have to write in advance. I need to make sure you're good if we slot in this afternoon, try and sort of game it out that, you know, I have three witnesses, you have two. I'm thinking if we schedule for, you know, the following Tuesday morning, at least lock that in. It's not a motion day. I'd like to lock my witness in. Is that cool with you? What days do you want to lock your experts in? Then if you and your adversary are sort of on the same page, then it gives you a little more comfort and then telling the judge in advance, listen, your honor, you know, this, this, this expert's really, you know, hitting me hard for a fee right now to lock in and reschedule, you know, can we at least just lock in this day? And if need be, we can take lay witnesses out of turn and all of that. So I find that's the best way to do it. You know, try and work with your experts the best you can. Um, you know, it's tough. I had a, a magistrate, my father guy, and I tried a case probably 12 years ago in the Southern district. And, um, you know, we had done that. We had slotted in our experts for Friday morning, two different physicians, one after another. Uh, we paid them their fees and everything else. And uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, surprisingly to us, our defense counsel, two or three lawyers on the other side, um, like had no questions. <laughs> Asked like two questions on cross. We figured it was going to go into Friday. So they're like, no, we have nothing else, Your Honor. The judge looks at us and is like, you ready to call your next witness? Like, yes, Your Honor, we have two medical experts, a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. Um, you know, they're her treatings. Uh, we have them slotted for Friday morning. Uh, and he says, well, that's not good. We're ready now, counsel. You get them here. We have this afternoon. You get them here this afternoon. I'm going to dismiss your case. So, you know, we freak out. We run out. We get them on the phone. We beg and plead. They say you better have a check for an extra $5,000 waiting for us and we'll be there. <laughs> and they came. So we got lucky because they weren't in surgeries, but 
it's stressful. And then if it, we couldn't get them, we'd have to make a record and we'd have to push back and say, Your Honor, it's not fair. We've done the best we can with scheduling. We've locked them in. But it is. That is tough stuff. Okay. Um, next question. How do you offer medical bills into evidence? Uh, check out the federal rules. Uh, CPLR, someone posted here. I know someone knows it on admissibility of medical records, hospital bills. Uh, they go in as long as you subpoena a certified copy to the hospital, uh, to the uh, courthouse, um, and they come in through subpoena records, boom, you just offer them in. You don't need a witness uh, for the medical charts from hospitals and for medical bills. Um, next question, what's your experience with calling an employee officer of an adverse party as a witness and being able to proceed with leading questions with or without first uh, having to set the foundation that the witness is adverse? Great question, Okay. Basically, what's being asked, for those of you who don't understand the question, is um, I want to call um, the driver in my auto case, the defendant driver in my case in chief. And um, the way you do that, by the way, is either you get in writing a confirmation from your adversary counsel that they'll produce them, or you serve them with a subpoena. But either way, you call them in your case. And you put them on and technically it's a direct witness. You're calling the witness first. So technically um, it would be a direct examination, open-ended questions, um, unless you can prove that it's an adverse witness and then you're allowed to cross-examine. Now, by nature, there are certain witnesses who by nature are adverse. If you are suing someone and that is the defendant, they are adverse by nature and you do not need to establish a foundation. You could get a rookie trial judge. Says, no, no, counsel, there's no way I'm letting you lead. Uh, it's your direct case. You have to do open-ended questions. Um, that's when I just get really frustrated and aggravated. Um, so you shouldn't have to lay any foundation. Uh, the court should know and just get into it and just start cross-examining. If the court raises an issue, ask if you can have a conference off the record, go back to chambers, say, come on, Your Honor, this is crazy. This is clearly an adverse witness. Do you need me to put them on the stand in front of this jury and say, are we suing you? Are you not happy to be called in our case in chief? Do we need to establish other things? But uh, it's usually pretty clear who an adverse witness is uh, and you get right into cross-examination. You put them on the stand and just cross. Then your defense can get up and, um, you know, they can still kind of lead, but really not. It's really like them giving a direct. So they're, they're not allowed to get up and just lead, 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 just because it's their witness also. So that's a great question. Uh, someone's asking about when to put an expert on the stand in order of the plaintiff uh, or, you know, whether you put the treating doctor or expert on before or after the plaintiff. My general flow to a trial is to start off with the injured party, the plaintiff, um, then go through lit the lay witnesses and then bring in the experts afterwards. Obviously, if it's a bifurcated trial, meaning you try liability first, damages as uh, a second trial, um, you're going to wait anyway to call your treating and medical damages experts. And you can do your liability experts if you have them first. Again, if it's a unified trial, I like to go in order uh, where I would have the liability experts after the plaintiff and lay experts, and then the damages experts last. That's generally the flow. Again, 
if your experts have scheduling issues, then you take them out of order. Um, and sometimes it can work out well that you have your expert lay out a foundation. Let's say you have a client that has a really bad memory because of, um, of the auto accident and you're alleging a traumatic injury. You may want to have your neurologist on first, sort of prepare the jury for the fact that when you call your plaintiff, why your client um, is not answering clearly or doesn't remember things, they have just heard from this treating physician of the neurologist explaining in advance why this your, your client and the plaintiff is not able to give uh, clear answers or doesn't have good memory. All right. Um, Jack, my friend, Jack Mullen, uh, excellent adversary I've had over the years. Uh, excellent trial lawyer as well is asking me, he's trying a case in King Supreme next month. Wow. Guess you're going to uh, go for it. Uh, they're opening up. Do I know if the trial judges there are making counsel use the trial notebooks called for in the new rules? What have you heard about the way they're doing things in Kings these days? Great question, Jack. I do not know. I have not stepped foot in Kings County Supreme Court in over a year. Uh, I don't know what they're doing as far as having a trial notebook. I know there are new rules. Um, my best bet and uh, recommendation, Jack, is just read the new rules, see what they're requiring, and then go, go over to the court, ask some locals what's going on. You know, there's plenty of locals in Brooklyn for sure, and you can find out if they're enforcing that. If we have anybody um, on this webinar, please drop something in the Q&A here if you know the answer to that and help our fellow lawyer Jack out on what the deal is with the notebooks and the new rules. Thank you for that question. Um, what happens to your expert witness and other expenses if you lose the case? Do you as a plaintiff's lawyer have to eat those costs on cases you lose? The answer is yes, Michelle. Uh, at least that's the majority of the time. Uh, there is an option under the law, under the new negligence retainers in New York State, where clients have the option to pay the expenses or have you as the law firm pay them and be reimbursed if you're successful. Uh, you certainly can put something in your retainer that you're going to expect to be reimbursed. Uh, I don't think you're going to be in business long if you start chasing after um, your clients for your expenses in a case. Uh, so either technically and or as a practical matter, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you lose the case, you lose all the money you've invested, all the time you've invested. Uh, and that's one thing the general public doesn't hear about when they hear about these big settlements or verdicts. They think how the plaintiff's lawyer got so lucky. They don't see how the plaintiff's lawyer had invested several hundred thousand dollars out of their law firm's pocket, or they mortgage things personally to bring an important case for their client, to fight for their client uh, with that risk. So uh, it's big stakes, especially in big cases that you spend a lot of money on. Okay. Ah, Bill, thanks for asking uh, if I could have been your law professor. I'm here now. We're going to keep this conversation going. Questions like this I want on the roundtable. All of 600 plus of you who have stayed here, please be on the lookout for my email later. Please register to just be a participant viewing the roundtable or submit to join the roundtable as a panelist. I'll be happy to put your information up. If not on this one, I'll keep you in the queue for future ones. But I like this, this give and take, and I'd love to have other people up on the screen other than me uh, that I can moderate and ask questions of, and uh, they can give you their thoughts as well. Um, <laughs> good question. Isn't it, very important, isn't it very important to know where the restroom is in the courthouse? What if the client asks you? Absolutely, it's important to know where the restroom is, okay? Um, I use the restroom all the time. I need to know how far away. Is it downstairs to the back? Is it right outside if your client needs to run? The real reason is timing. 
right? Because if they're if you're about to start something or the client needs to run, you want to know like how much time of break do you need for the restroom? And you just want to know so you can tell witnesses and tell your clients. Uh, you definitely want to size that out. I have found that for the most part, there's usually a restroom pretty accessible. However, um, if you have a client that is wheelchair bound uh, or otherwise uh, disabled from effectively using stairwells, a lot of the older court courthouses are not as easily acceptable, uh, accessible to bathrooms. So you want to plan that well in advance because if it is going to take longer, uh, you want to let the court know so that um, the breaks can be longer. Um, all right, there's some more questions on jury selection. I'm going to save some of those for the fall. You'll just have to tune in. Uh, the very first episode uh, in September, on September 8th, we'll get right into jury selection. We'll cover all this stuff, okay? Um, all right. Is promoting your personal injury award on Instagram something that is ethical? Do you need to get permission from your clients to promote it? Do you need permission from the bars? This could be an advertisement. Thank you. So that question is a little outside the scope of this. Um, but generally, um, you know, don't name names of your client, of the defendant. You could post an award. Uh, you usually, and, you know, I'm not the expert on this, but I do a lot of marketing and advertising. So we always have something in real small print indicating that you know prior results don't uh you know don't uh don't guarantee future results things like that i believe stuff that you're putting up on tv has to have something small saying that it's attorney advertising so that's something that's easy enough to look up um do i find that demonstrative evidence is an essential way to sway a juror your way jury your way great question jim thank you for asking that um we're going to talk a lot about demonstrative evidence i'll probably have a whole um a whole section on it in the fall on demonstrative evidence and moving things into evidence and how to effectively use different types. But yes, 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 yes. Uh, think of when uh, you were a kid in class. Um, would you rather sit there and just have the teacher stand up and lecture uh, and just talk to you? Or did you get excited when they would, you know, let you know that you're going to see a movie or they were bringing in a special guest? Uh, or have a model of, of the spine to show you, God knows what. But the point is, you know, exhibits are fun. Jurors like it. First of all, it gets their attention more. Secondly, it is a great way to deliver your message. I know my father guy's smiling right now. He taught me at a young age, the jury needs to understand something. And sometimes no matter how articulate we feel we are in explaining something, there's no... Um, replacement for visual context. So sometimes you have great photos. You need to blow them up. You need to make them big or, um, you know, bring in a screen and a monitor. I can't tell you how many times I've had defense counsel in cases of mine that they just print out a photo on like an eight and a half by 11 and they like hold it up in front of the jury like they thought of it that morning while leaving their office. It's crazy. And if your carrier is not going to reimburse you uh, to get an enlargement, then speak to the managing partners in your firm and tell them that you need money to, um, to enlarge exhibits, to help you win this case, to make your firm look better. You need to enlarge exhibits. I use medical illustrations. I have custom artists create exhibits. We had a construction accident case a long time ago where the photographs of like a, a, a construction site were a mess. And there was just no way that a jury would have been able to understand it. We brought in an artist who drew out the diagrams off the blueprints. We got them authenticated through witnessing. This is what it looked like. We then got magnets and put them on magnetic boards. I've done in my subway accident cases, 
I've gotten scale models of trains and scaled tracks and distances and put it up in front of a jury and move the trains around. And, and I mean, jurors love it. It's a great way to establish your case. Uh, we always do anatomy lessons in our firm. When you get to the damages part, whatever you're talking about, if it's an orthopedist and a back injury, you bring in uh, a spinal uh, model. You bring in exhibits showing the spine and discs and herniations and where nerves pinch in. You have to give anatomy lessons, meaning you have your experts stand up and explain everything, the anatomy of the body and the affected parts. Um, use videos, use overhead diagrams. The stuff, folks, that experts can do these days, we have a lot of them at the academy, um, is just, I mean, we had on the Amador case, the overhead exhibit we used, my expert um, put drones up into the sky. He has an FAA license. He put drones up to scan the area so that he can have an exact photograph, image, detail to move things around. I mean, there's so much you can do now um, with exhibits. So I'm a huge fan. If you see me getting excited, that's why. Do it, do it, do it. Exchange them in advance of trial. This We talked a little bit about this last time. So your adversary doesn't have an opportunity to object or at least can't object on not being alerted to it. You never want surprises. You need to prepare. Preparation, preparation, preparation goes to everything, exhibits included. You know, workshop it. Me, my father, the other partners in my firm, Jason and Sally, we, we sit down, we say, what do we think a jury needs to see? Do we like this photo? What about this medical illustration? Should we make this bigger or smaller? I mean, you need to put thought into this. Show it to your lay people uh, in your world, your family members, your kids, your spouses. You want to get an honest feedback. Does this look right to you? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? All right. How do you rebut effective surveillance of your client? Great question. I have rarely, rarely, I think once gotten surveillance footage that was actually showed my client doing something that he shouldn't. It was a client from way back in the day who claimed a back injury and that he just couldn't work doing sort of, you know, day labor type stuff. And he went back to England and they had an investigator in England show him like stepping out of a work trailer, holding like a, a board over his shoulder after he testified to that. And I was like, you're kidding me. Right. And um, surprisingly, we still they settled the case with us, um, surprisingly. But 99 percent of the time, it's video footage of your client taking a walk outside uh, of doing hardly anything of doing nothing that has anything to do with their injury. So let's say they like have a broke, had a broken elbow and it shows them going out and walking their dog with their good arm under surveillance. And the best part, I love it because we effectively use these surveillance videos at trial all the time. And I say to my adversary, yeah, thanks for sharing that evidence in that video. I'm gonna be calling your videographer in my case in chief, because then what do I do? I say, members of the jury, you saw that video. You saw they, they state the defense in this case. Not only do they not acknowledge fault, not only do they not acknowledge our client's injury that you heard testimony from, from her orthopedic surgeon and from everything else you've seen in this case, but what do they do? They hire somebody to sit in a van outside of their house, outside of my client's house and spied on them for a week. We asked him how many days while well, I had to go back for a week. They sat there, they spied on him, they videotaped him doing personal things. How dare they? And what does it show? What does it show? It shows nothing, members of the jury. That's a mean-spirited defense. 
I took that line from my dad. He loves that. Mean-spirited. As a plaintiff, you, you point out that the defense is mean-spirited. Jurors hate mean-spirited defendants. So you can flip that. And if the video surveillance is really good and shows your client doing something they shouldn't be doing and they said they couldn't do, then you better settle your damn case. All right. Um, we've got uh, 228. Um, you got maybe one more you want to hit, and then we'll do the last poll. Yeah, let's do one more and then the last poll. Um, all right, putting in a police report. This is a really good one I'm going to touch on briefly. So there's a big dispute about police reports and getting them in evidence. I've submitted plenty of case law to my trial judges saying it should go into evidence under various for various statutes and reasons. And that, yeah, maybe some of the statements contained therein are hearsay. Maybe they're not. Um, so I'll tell you what Judge Sampson did. I hope your honor is on this because he made the right call. Um, in my last trial, we subpoenaed, it was a good police report, good statements, and we subpoenaed the trial, the, the officer for trial, and uh, he was ready to go whenever we needed him. And when the judge was asking who our witnesses are, I said, yeah, we have the, 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 the officer coming in. And Judge Sampson looked to me and he said, Mr. Smiley, why are you going to drag a police officer who's out there responsible for keeping us safe and doing his duty as a police officer and waste his time coming in here at trial just to say, yeah, this is my police report. It's a waste of all of our time and a waste of the officer's time. Then he turns to my adversary and says, what's your problem? You have a problem with this police report? And, well, I don't know. I got to think about it. I got to check with my client. At the end of the day, the judge made it clear he's not going to be happy. Look, you can call whoever you want, but he's not going to be happy if you waste his courtroom time uh, and the juror's time uh, when you know that's coming into evidence when they've got a subpoena out and he's going to respond. And then reluctantly, my adversary says, all right, we'll stip it in. And then the, we go on record and we stipulate we can put it in and we put it in. So you got to work that out um, on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think his honor handled it the right way. He's going to, most good judges like Judge Sampson, they're going to let you try your case. They're going to let you make your record. But they're also going to tell you what they're happy with and they're not happy with. And as a trial lawyer, I don't want an unhappy judge. And I certainly don't want to be the one who makes that judge unhappy. So that's how I would handle that situation. So if you're attending today's CLE via podcast, the second attendance verification code is POD686. Again, that's POD686. Before we go. Yeah, go. I see everybody signing out. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us, as always. And um, please join me on the roundtable. You're going to get an email later, and you'll have a link to the website up here, the here, the Mentor ESQ. Um, we've made eBooks, and you'll be seeing those. So eBooks are out for the first three parts of this series downloadable in PDF form. You can download them. You can have them, uh, the text, you can save them to your computer for future reference. So I encourage you to check out the site and download the eBooks. Um, you'll see that we don't charge anything. I'm in this business to help others. And uh, but we, we do ask is you'll see a link to the water project, which is a foundation my family is very involved in to help bring clean water uh, to remote parts of sub-Saharan Africa to villages and schools. So you'll see a little something about that. But please sign up the roundtable. This very first episode is it's sort of a test run. We'd love to see how it goes. We are capped at five hundred uh, uh, attendees, so it could close out fast. So please sign up. And if you like what's going on here, join the Academy. Come on. Are you one of those people that have been to several CLEs of the Academy and have joined it, enjoyed it, but not joined yet? Just join. It's not that much money. 
we're a great group of lawyers. We help each other out. There's great resources. And, uh, and I want you as members, you can get involved. You can get on the associate board. You can get on the board of directors. You can change the law in the state. You can change the way things happen uh, in our courts. You can really have your voice heard. I, I encourage you to join the academy. And uh, if you like the CLE, please let others know about it. Come back for more. And um, if you like the podcast and you're listening to it, please share it, like it, give it a good review and share it with your uh, students, colleagues and friends.